BroadwaySingers.org. This is Raquel, inviting you to join me on Tuesday evenings at 8 p.m. for Musical Colors, an exploration of the textures of jazz and world music. Join me, Raquel, for Musical Colors on Tuesdays at 8 p.m. here on KPFA, Listener Sponsor Radio. 94.1 FM You're listening to 94.1 KPFA KPFA in Berkeley, KLCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org Stay tuned because coming up is Open Book
afternoon and welcome to Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. I'm Amelia Gonzalez, wanting to thank all of you who gave generously in the spirit of celebrating our 60th anniversary. Muchísimas gracias. Today, we talk with the author of Building the Latino Future, Frank Carvajal, about his book, and we also learn about the film American Violet that will be opening on May 1st. So stay with us. Frank Carvajal is founder and president of Estiempo that provides coaching and leadership counseling for business entrepreneurs. He, along with Humberto Medina, has recently co-written the book that we're talking about today, entitled Building the Latino Future, Success Stories for the Next Generation. I start with asking him why this book and why now. I was inspired to write this book from a, a colleague, a friend of mine in a, a graduate program. He wrote a book on uh, successful black CEOs throughout uh, the country. He actually um, self-published his book, and in the journey of writing this book, I had told him that I was going to look into uh, getting a publisher to look at my book, and uh, his words were, good luck. So what the thought that I had was that in terms of the general perception of uh, Latinos across the U.S., it's unfortunate that uh, there are so many ne negative stereotypes. And living in Santa Clara in the Silicon Valley, I saw so many uh, local leaders that entrepreneurs, attorneys, investment bankers, and folks that, uh, that are movers and shakers in our area in the Silicon Valley. And I felt since I was tied into, uh, at the time, it was in 2003 when the thought actually... Uh, was uh, coming to fruition, I, I thought, you know, I could start interviewing local uh, leaders and uh, really tell their story in terms of uh, entrepreneurship. So my first interview uh, was with a gentleman by the name of Roberto Medrano, who uh, is mm -hmm. a co-founder of Hispanic Net. Hispanic Net has uh, folks that uh, support uh, entrepreneurs. Uh, and the other person that I interviewed initially was uh, Richard Lessa. He's actually the founder of Hispanic Net. He founded uh, Hispanic Net in 2001. So starting off uh, regionally in uh, the Bay Area, it actually uh, allowed me to open the doors to uh, interview some folks down in Los Angeles and across uh, from Los Angeles to the southwestern region. And when I first started this project, um, I thought, well, there aren't too many books that uh, really paint the positive picture of Latinos uh, in business or in academia. And, you know, those are important pillars. Of course, the most important pillar for Latinos, especially uh, first generation or uh, immigrants, is education. And uh, these are the things that I've learned from my, my parents. And with uh, these gentlemen like Roberto Medrano and Richard Lessa, that's what they support. They support uh, furthering the education of uh, Latinos and uh, striving to apply to top-tier programs uh, across the country. And I really was passionate at the time in writing uh, the book that I, I felt very confident to pitch it to uh, publishers. You also interviewed Bill Richardson, Henry Cisneros, Ray Suarez, that is no stranger to the air, to public radio. Describe the process in Who Made the Cut. What what determined you having the Sorry, rights? folks, we're going to change question. the programming again because I finally found the correct CD. Welcome to Open Book. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is John Fisher. Artistic and Executive Director of Theater Rhino in San Francisco, the oldest queer theater organization around. 
At one time, there was very little coverage in the mainstream theater world of plays relating specifically to gay men and lesbians. That's changed. That means to some degree the mission of a place like Rhino would have to shift. Has it? Yeah, it's it's tried to become broader in its understanding. I mean, I think all of these theater companies start out as gay male theaters, and we've become LGBT, questioning everything. And that's helped broaden our mandate, but also challenging doing new works on subjects that aren't going to be done on television and film and even in mainstream theater. That's how we've stayed afloat. Uh, about a year ago, I interviewed Tony Tacconi of Berkeley Rep and asked him to define the difference between ACT and Berkeley Rep. He gave an answer which involved the fact that ACT focused on the canon, if you want to call it that, whereas Berkeley Rep moved in a more experimental direction. When yeah. I spoke with Carrie Perloff, she said that, no, that's not what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> and what she said was that she felt it was important to balance new plays with the canon because she said most new plays, the people who write them, you know, they mostly have watched television. Yep. Therefore, yep. their plays tend to work in a different way than great theatrical plays. So she wants to mix the two. That was her perspective. John Fisher, what's yours on that? I grew up on television. Very oddly, I grew up on movies on television. So even my perception of movies is very television-oriented because of commercials. I mean, I would watch Casablanca, but it was broken up even more than Michael Curtiz ever wanted it to be because of all these commercials. So I understand that. I think that that's a very clever way of looking at it because the past is informed by a much more deliberate approach to theater as opposed to the present, which is much more schizophrenic. Things really hop around. But the Greeks, of course, they hopped around a lot, too. So it's interesting. I think we're getting back to something fundamental with theater now, which is even in the Greeks, we see a lot of movement, a lot of movement. But the classic Ibsenian play or the Shaw play really is a play of dialogue and ideas. And the movement that we're used to now, I think, has diffused a lot of that. So I think a combination of the two is, is appropriate. And in the case of, say, the upcoming season of Rhino, you do have one older play, two older plays, British Sex Farces, black comedy, which I saw on Broadway, by the way, and up against it, a play by Joe Wharton. Yeah. Well, black comedy is one set. It's a classic old farce. It's one set, and it's everything you can do with that set. In other words, that's how theater used to think. It's like, here's your set. What all can you do with this thing? And, of course, there's a blackout, and the whole play is about these people stumbling around to the blackout and all the sexual complications that arise from that. So that is sort of a classic old farce. And the Orton play is also from the same era. Orton is interesting because this is a screenplay that's been adapted for the stage. He wrote a screenplay for the Beatles, which was never produced because they thought it was too risque. So this is going to be a little more filmic because, of course, now you can do screenplays on stage. So it's going to be a combination of kind of the old and the new. Well, when you say now you can do screenplays on stage, what do you mean? I think people are used to seeing movement on stage, plays that have 80 scenes, plays that read like television. Was the breakthrough, you think, Angels in America? Angels in America definitely has that fluidity, absolutely. I think the breakthrough was American musical theater. The American musical, really, somebody like Hal Prince, He's already starting to do it with Cabaret, but by the time he gets around to working with Sondheim and company, he knows no limits. I mean, even the set changes are interesting. It's people going up and down in elevators on stage, visible. There's a complete fluidity to his work, 
which has informed the way Sondheim has composed. I think it's Hal Prince. I think it's Bob Fosse on stage. I think it's Michael Bennett. I think it's finding the motion in theater in addition to the emotion. In essence, the direction came before the writing. I think that's a great way of looking at it because I think so many directors, I mean, Tony Ticcone is one. He's always been attracted to these British political plays and to plays of fluidity, of motion. And that's how he utilizes a text and animates it. John Fisher, how are you being affected by the economic turndown? I think all theater is being affected by it. Theater is a discretionary act. I mean, it's not an impulsive one. Like, we go to movies, I think, or turn on television, absolutely. I mean, we just do it. We don't think about it. Theater, because it starts at 8, because it requires organization, because we have to be in the right mental state, really is an act of will. And in any tough economy, those are the first things that people start to cross off their list, unfortunately. So I think we're all struggling right now but we're staying afloat we're trying to find those subjects that people can't find on television or in film to keep them coming back are you doing the same number of plays you've been doing we're doing fewer this year this season we're doing nine this season we're in now nine plays the upcoming one they're going to be fewer just as a recognition that we're a little bit more challenged economically this year than we were last year do you guys farm out your theater to other people then? yes we're a facility for many queer and non-queer organizations i mean that's part of our mandate is providing an economical space for other theater companies that don't have a home the other plays that you've developed, one is the Laramie Project, 10 years later. What's the story behind that? Well, we were approached by the Tectonic Theater to be the local theater company to produce this update of the Laramie Project, this wonderful piece about uh, Matthew Shepard and gay hate in the center of the country. And now there's a 10-year update. It's 10 years, and they're going back to talk to the same people they talked to before and find out where they are. So that'll be a project that we work on with the Tectonic Theater and with the Jewish Community Center in San Francisco, which is providing the space for the project. And then there's a New Year's Eve spectacular with Marga Gomez. In next year, next February, you have the new Nikki Silva play, Agony in the Agony. That played, I think, uh, off-Broadway last year. It played at the um, Vineyard, but it played in a lab production. It's never been presented to critics. So it's been an underground production. This will be its first time open to the press in a professional production. Have you selected a director yet? Danny Shea wants to be involved. I want him to act in it, and then I'll have somebody else who I have in mind to direct it. If you'd read this play and knew this character... Danny Shea is the perfect person for this. Well, Silver is uh, pretty astonishing. You brought a couple of his things, too. Uh, yeah, Beautiful Simple Child Simple. and Past Perfect, which both did much better here than they did in New York. And I think it's testament to the local audience that they could link into what Nikki's up to these days. In an age, I think, where playwrights more and more are trying to sound like everybody. They're trying to sound like natural. They're trying to sound like everybody else. Nikki's held on to his voice, and I love it. The way people turn phrases in his show, it's like gay, new millennium Neil Simon. Nikki is Nikki. The final production, which will be uh, in about a year, uh, you haven't figured out what it is. That's a TBA. We have a couple of things on the plates uh, we've talked about. Well, the one that excites me most at this point is The Merchant of Venice. People keep ignoring that the merchant, the title character, is gay. He's got his love, and that's who he underwrites. And that's where he gets screwed over, because he underwrites this guy that he loves. And what happens is that he ends up oppressing Shylock. I mean, the gay man oppresses the Jew, which I think is what's so horrible about oppression. Have you ever done Shakespeare? Right? There has been Shakespeare. Danny Shea did this brilliant 
production of Twelfth Night, which was set on a submarine, this <laughs> gay submarine. Well, what submarine isn't, you know, in the U.S. Navy? But we have done Shakespeare. I think this is in the text, though. And many people have said this other than me. He, he is a gay man in love with another man who gets drawn into a horrible situation. There's still a couple of plays left this season. What have we got? Right now we have A Necessary Evil, which is my own play, which plays through Sunday. And then we have Three on a Party, which is our collaboration with Word for Word, a wonderful company, which puts uh, short stories on stage, but not as, not as narrative, not as spoken word, but as actual enactments, actual performances of short stories. And this one consists of a story by Gertrude Stein and a story by Tennessee Williams and finally a story by Armistead Maupin. And Armistead's actually involved in the project. And then finally, we have Suzanne Westenhofer coming out this summer to do her uh, stand-up. <laughs> Find out what's up with her, and that'll be in July. Trying to get audiences, what can you do? You are in, I don't want to say competition, because obviously you're all colleagues, and there's an interplay. You've done work with ACT, and ACT people have come to you, yeah. and Berkeley Rep. Absolutely. But how do you try to get your audience? What do you do? We have a very loyal audience, and I think the challenge for us is how to expand that audience. We talk a lot about getting young people into the theater, and how do you get young people into the theater? The best way to get young people into the theater has always been to give them free tickets. How do you negotiate that and not exclude the people who are actually paying for the tickets? And so we've done a lot of a lot of specific nights for people to come and see the shows for free and marketing to them. And, of course, the way you market to young people is MySpace, Facebook, the e-blasts, it's the Internet. It really is more and more about the Internet. Well, how about people who find themselves without money? I mean, Carrie said she's going to institute something at ACT, which is the top deck is going to be open seating for like 10 bucks or something, like the same cost of, um, of, a, of a film. What do, you, what do you do for that? Well, the great thing is that with Gold Star and TBA half-price tickets, you can buy a ticket to Theater Rhinoceros for seven fifty. If you do the research, you can see a play for less than a movie. And as I say, we're also opening up the theater. We have such a small theater that if we had $10 seats, the people who paid $30 would throw a fit because all the seats are good. So we really have put a lot of emphasis on getting the word out about the pay-what-you-can previews, the dress rehearsals that are open for free, and the discounting that's available. Let's talk a little bit about your own career. Uh, how did you get involved in theater to begin with? I was one of those kids who didn't fit in in the whole high school athletic thing. And fortunately, I went to both a junior high and to a high school that had drama departments. We wrote and directed our plays. We created works of theater that were specific to our audience, and that's what I was doing in seventh grade and have been doing ever since. When did you write your first play, do you remember? I co-wrote a play called Whatever Happened to Roland Boyle <laughs> with eight other people when I was in seventh grade. Were you a theater major in college then? I was a theater. I got my undergraduate degree in dramatic art and European history. Then I uh, went to New York, and I directed in New York off-Broadway. And I came back to San Francisco because I fell in love with my life partner, who I've been with for 20 years. And he was in San Francisco, so this is the place to be for me. And then I went back to graduate school and got my Ph.D. in dramatic art. The first play, how did you get to direct a play? The very first play that I ever directed all on my own was at summer camp, and they needed somebody to run drama. 
And I said I'd do it if I could write and direct all the plays. And they said, yeah, sure. They didn't care. They were just like, yeah, sure, go ahead. And so I wrote and directed. And it made sense because I'd have like 12 kids of different genders. Who writes plays specific for the number of kids that you would get? So I had to write my own plays. So every three weeks I wrote five new plays because I had five drama classes. <laughs> Did you ever look at those plays again? Oh, my God, they're horrible. But, you know, they all kind of worked, you know, summer camp around the fire. You know, they, they all kind of worked in their kind of their tacky thrown together way. Oh, I didn't sleep all summer. I was going insane. I was going crazy. I was dirty. I was filthy. I had growths on me. I'd never showered. I was up all night writing plays, and then all day I was, like, directing. It was crazy. The camp counselor was so impatient with me. She was just like, you know, you, you look terrible. You need to sleep. I said, why can I sleep? You need to bathe. But they loved it. I mean, they come and see it opening night. Then I was forgiven. And you came to San Francisco. Who did you get involved with? Did you get involved with Rhino at that point? No, actually, the first theater that I was doing in San Francisco when I came back from New York was all college theater. It was all UC Berkeley, and it just happened that the first show we did was produced at the Bayfront Theater. We moved it into the city, and then we just sort of got into this habit of moving UC Berkeley stuff into the city. And how did Medea the Musical come about? I wanted to do Carrie the Musical. I begged them to get the rights to Carrie the Musical, this famous, horrible flop. But it's not. It's actually really interesting. They would not give us the rights to it. They said, no, we think it's going to be a hit one day, and we don't want it being done by some university. So I had three weeks to tech, four weeks to opening night, so I just wrote Medea the Musical. I was just like, fine, I'll write my own show that's ridiculous and campy. The people in it were just students? Yeah, they're people that I'd worked with before. At, that's, they were undergraduates, so it became this show about a bunch of undergraduates putting on this production of Medea the Musical and what happens backstage. It was like completely autobiographical. It was totally thrown together, and I never thought that anybody would be like, think it was anything great. It was like summer camp, or just trying to get the next show open. What happened? I mean, how did it open, and how did it suddenly become a hit? Well... The first preview was a disaster. The lighting equipment wasn't working. So the, we let the audience in, and then we realized that the spotlight didn't work. So then we start working on the spotlight over the audience's head while they're sitting there waiting for the show to start. At 8 o'clock, 8.30, the spotlight still isn't working. In the midst of fixing the spotlight, we dropped a wrench into the audience. And we were all like, we, we were convinced we killed somebody. We look, oh, this is the first performance. We look over the railing timidly to see who we've killed with this wrench that's fallen 20 feet. And my aunt is down there going, I've got it, John. I've got the wrench. I'll bring it up to you. It was like the most absurd opening of all time. So finally, when the show started at 9 o'clock, we were just so relieved it started that we didn't really notice that it was like, <laughs> it was like nobody laughed for two hours. It was like weird. It was this big flop. And we couldn't figure out what was wrong with it other than the audience was pissed off that we'd taken an hour to start the damn thing. So the next night, we applied the brilliant solution of starting on time with a working spotlight. And then slowly, you know, we found the rhythm of it. And I don't know, the audience just responded to it. We extended it at Durham. It had an extension there. And then we moved into the city uh, a year later. Eventually, it was performed. It, it won awards. It's been performed by different yeah. uh, casts. Yeah. What's the story behind HBO? Was it ever put on the air? Yeah, it was put on the air. It was part of the HBO Comedy Festival in Aspen. So we went to Aspen and performed this thing. And, you know, there's no oxygen in Aspen. There's no oxygen. Have you ever acted in a musical with no oxygen? It's amazing. We were definitely the exotic performance piece because we were so gay and so radical. And uh, it was filmed as part of the comedy festival and introduced by Sinbad, <laughs> of all people. And it was done on HBO. And it aired. Yeah, and I never really heard what anybody thought about it. Did, did you ever get a DVD of it? I've got one of it somewhere. The funny thing was, is the first DVD they sent of us was this edit. It was the first two minutes of the show over and over again for two hours. 
like it was this faulty edit. And I, I'm convinced to this day that that's what they showed on, on the air so that everybody thinks that it's this mad Dada reinterpretation where the first two minutes is just repeated endlessly. You're listening to an interview with John Fisher of Theater Rhino. Since then, you've written several plays, Joy of Gay Sex, Combat, Is She Last of the Yahi came last year, There's Something About Marriage, Special Forces, Schoenberg, which played in New York, and now Necessary Evil. Do you feel it's best for you as a writer to direct yourself, your own plays? I've seen my stuff directed very successfully by the directors. I always take the first crack at my pieces. I've submitted a lot of plays to theater festivals because I'd really like to see a new play directed by somebody else. I'd really like to have that experience of just being the playwright and being involved just as playwright. And I think I'm moving towards that even now in San Francisco, finding somebody who would actually direct the project and I'd just be involved as playwright. Would you be willing to sit back? I mean, you're you're kind of a hands-on guy. I'm very hands-on, yeah. I think there was trust there, and I, I have a huge amount of trust in performers and in directors who I produce. I mean, as a producer, I have to invest a lot of trust in people. And it's funny, I have very few notes for directors when I see a first run-through. Usually, I just sort of sit and try and get into what they're doing with the piece. And it's more like the second run-through where I'm actually giving notes along the lines of what they're trying to do. And I think that that's the process I'd have with one of my own plays. What do they want to do with it? And then how can I facilitate that? Do you have sometimes trouble separating yourself as director, producer, or playwright from being just an audience member and, and becoming that audience member watching? Yes, absolutely. As you know, with this current project, which is a workshop, I'm really soliciting feedback on this project because it's very difficult for any playwright, I feel, to completely separate themselves from the process while they're watching the actual performance. We have a very detailed experience of a piece, and we see every moment as a success or failure relative to the work that we did to get it on stage, as opposed to the audience, which is not as micro-scrutinizing a piece. They're just living it moment to moment. They're not seeing it as, that worked, that didn't, that worked, that didn't, that worked, that didn't. Oftentimes, an audience will say to you, I was so moved by a moment that you thought was a disaster. And actually what they're responding to is the pure spontaneity of the moment. Often disasters in theater are actually very spontaneous moments, and audiences respond to that. Let's talk about the process of creating a play. Okay, you sit down, you're at your computer, and you write this thing. And you know it's going to go on because... You know, you're in charge. You know you're going to be able to do it. What happens next? I mean, do you, do you suddenly cast it in the same way that you would cast a regular play? For a playwright like me, because of the background I come from developing plays for specific groups of people, it really helps to imagine people playing the roles, to really see people in the roles, specific actors. And I don't mean famous people. I, you know, I don't mean movie stars. I mean, like, for me, it helps to imagine people that I know who I've worked with playing these roles because then they start talking to you. Is that how you did it with the four principles of this piece? Yeah, but they weren't the four actors who ended up playing it. I had four people in mind, and I started with an incident, and then the play grew out of that. What was the incident? The, the ending? ending? Yeah. And the play grew out of that. And it grew backwards, obviously, because I started with the ending. But it also grows forwards because of the way people speculate life goes on after the ending when I talk to audience members. And then I enter into 
what all of us talk about as playwrights, which is the dialogue you have with your characters and how they begin to write the play. You are in a collaboration with them, which is you have a story to tell and a point to make. They have a day-to-day life to make real. So you are in a constant negotiation with them. And this is where the rewriting moment comes up. If they take over too much, you don't have a play. You have a dialogue. If you take over too much, you have a diatribe. You don't have a play. Waldman, Berkeley resident and author of Love and Other Impossible Pursuits, created a New York Times Tempest last year when she declared that she loved her husband, writer Michael Shaban, more than she does their four children. Uh-oh, bad mother alert. I'm Eileen Alfandari letting you know that Ayelet Waldman will be celebrating her brash, funny new memoir, Bad Mother, a chronicle of maternal crimes, minor calamities, and occasional 